So I have been told stories about my own birth. I think people in my family actually know where they were at when I was born. It's not because my birth was necessarily particularly special. To, I mean, those people, they were my parents and grandparents. And stuff, but, but they remember that because it's significant to the day that I was born. It was not significant because I was born on it. It was significant in historical context. I was born on the 40th anniversary of the date of the initiative of the largest naval army and air operation in human history called Operation Overlord, otherwise known as D-Day. D-Day was the invasion of Europe that was ultimately set uh, for June 6, 1944, and it would eventually, uh, through great cost, it would eventually end the war in Europe, uh, would result in the victory of the Allies. My dad remembers watching uh, President Reagan at the time delivering a D-Day speech from Normandy, in the shores of Normandy. My, my grandfather, who was actually not that far away from Normandy in Germany on a military base, actually got what's called a, the equivalent of 80s versions of a, of a telegram, was a telex, uh, saying that I had been born and he was now a grandpa, which is pretty cool. Um, I actually went back and found that uh, recording of President Reagan um, delivering that speech. It's, it's in his National Archives, and you can watch it on YouTube. And I was watching it. I, I realized that he was saying some particular things. And at one point, he makes a statement about why D-Day had to happen, about why the invasion was necessary. And he said, I'm going to paraphrase this, but he makes this interesting statement. He said, normally invasions are about conquest. This was not about conquest. This invasion was about liberation. So it was a liberation invasion. And some of you may have heard this other term around Christmas before. You heard, heard this term incarnation. What is Incarnation. Incarnation is from the Latin. It actually means carno or flesh whenever you eat carnitas uh, or carne asada. It's meat, flesh. Um, incarnation literally means to take on flesh or to become embodied. And incarnation is actually another term for God's liberation invasion. It means when God became the incarnation, it means that God, who was God, became man. He took on flesh. And he came and he stepped into our world, our physical world, with a specific mission to save, to liberate. And that's what Christmas is actually about. That's what Christmas is about. And the question I want to look at tonight is, is looking at the incarnation, but then I also want to look at the question of why. Why would God choose to save in this way? Why did God come and be born as a man? Why is that good news? Why is it good news, Emmanuel, God with us? Why is that good news? So we need to spend some time unpacking what the incarnation is about, and then we need to understand what that means for us. So let's pray, and then we'll look at what God has to say. Holy Spirit, I just want you to come tonight, Lord. Would you just take over? Would you give me the words to say, Lord, and would you soften our hearts? Would you make the areas of our hearts that are hard like stone, would you make them soft like flesh? Would you intersect our world here and now, Lord, and would we encounter you in a new way? 
Lord, come and be present with us. Be our God, be our King, be our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Just as a, a call out tonight, I, uh, I'm uh, <clears throat> this last week been battling some sleepless nights and some sickness. And whenever I'm up here, just so you know, so I've got my uh, tissues my mom has given me. Uh, I am going to end up probably sweating like a pig, so she brought me a towel. And I'm severely dehydrated, so I've also got my water, so I'm the picture of weakness up here. Uh, We can't possibly cover everything that Scripture has to say about God becoming a man. Um, So I hope to give three three wants, answer three what questions about the incarnations, then I want to answer three why questions about the incarnation. We're going to be bouncing around through a large section of scriptures. I'm not going to give you the references. I'm not going to necessarily call them out. They should be up on the board. But if you want to plant yourselves anywhere, plant yourself in John 1, Philippians 2. So I'm just going to go ahead and start off right now. John 1, verses 1 through 5 and 9 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world, and though the world was made in him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So first thing, I want to put this uh, text in a little bit of historical context because it's important. The Gospels, the the first four books of the Bible are really kind of considered the fourfold gospel. The first three are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're considered the synoptic gospels. They're meant to be seen together. Uh, they, They tell the story of what happened throughout the life of Christ. And the fourth gospel is the gospel of John, what we're looking at tonight. And the Gospel of John takes a little bit of a different tact. Rather than looking at the what, it is looking at who Jesus is. The Gospel of John was written probably shortly after the first three, and so it was written to readers that would have understood the content of the first three. And John has a very specific person and reason in mind for writing this Gospel, and it's this. In John 20, 31, at the very end of the book, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So right out of the gate in John's gospel, he he drops this absolutely massive truth bomb uh, for his readers. And that, tr- that first truth bomb, the way he kind of hooks the sinker for it, is he uses this, this capital uh, word, the word. In Greek, that word is written as logos or logos. Does anyone actually know the correct way to pronounce that? Logos, logos. 
Okay, I'm going to use them interchangeably just to mess with you. Uh, Lagos is a really, really interesting word. So Jews would have had one understanding of this. They would have understood this word to actually mean the word of God, but also that it was actually used to refer to the person of God and his attributes, not merely just the words that he spoke. God himself to the Jews was invisible to men. He was not able to be seen, and interacting directly with him was not a common occurrence. If it was a common occurrence, often the result would be death because he's a holy God. But to Greek readers, this is in Greek, the word logos had an entirely different meaning, similar but different. Logos was the power that ordered both individual rational thought and the overarching ultimate reason or the divine power that gave order to the entire universe. In other words, the force. Yeah, I knew you'd understand that one. It controlled all things, but it was incomprehensible to men. It was a power beyond them. So both the Jews and the Greeks would have uh, looked at this term, and John uses this term in order to be able to hook them both and say, hey, pay attention to this. I got something big to tell you. The unseen, the unseeable, the unknown, the unknowable God, let me tell you how you can see him and know him. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Here's what he's saying here. The word is eternal and personal. He's not a force, and he's always been there. He was there in the beginning. He wasn't created. He is a person. Second, Logos was with God. So the word was a person who was with God, i.e. distinct from God. He's a separate person from God. And the third, oh yeah, he also was God. How can you be both distinct and the same? John is talking here about the Trinity. He's talking about the Godhead, the three in one, three persons, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. And he's specifically talking about the Son. The Father is distinct from the Son, and the Son is distinct from the Father. They are equally God, yet they are separate persons. Eternal, distinct from God, yet God. John is saying, look, the logos you are looking for the way God is making himself seen and understood now, today, is the person of Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Everything that can be said about God the Father can be said about God the Son. In Jesus dwells all the wisdom, glory, power, love, holiness, justice, goodness, truth, order, righteousness, holiness, of the Father. In him, God the Father is known. So this is a big deal. He's making a big claim. He's making the claim that Jesus was there at creation, and now Jesus, who is God, has come to earth as a man. He continues. It's a good verse three. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing has been 
made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So not only is the Son of God not created, but rather he was the agent of creation. Christ was there in the beginning, and he was the one that spoke the world into being. And in him was life. And what he's talking about there, he uses the term Zoe, which is actually the, the name of our first daughter we chose to name it. And Zoe is not just talking about regular life, life that springs up, born and die, but it's literally talking about the principle of life itself, the essence, the origin of life. The logos is where life emanates from. And the, the logos is what brings life into being. And the logos is what sustains all existence. In verse four and five, in every way, spiritually, physically, it is not the word that the word contains life and light. The word is life and light. He spoke natural light into existence in Genesis along with the rest of the Godhead when there was nothing. And in the spiritual darkness and deadness, the word is the light that shines out. Some translations actually look at this in verse five, and, and this is an interesting word in that comprehend. The, sometimes they say, the, they translate, the darkness has not compre, does, did not comprehend it. There are other translations that come in, and I think this might actually be a little bit more accurate and true to form. It's hard to translate, but it's, the darkness has not overcome it. Regardless of which idea kind of rises up here, the idea is the same. Before the light of the Logos, darkness must give way. Darkness loses, light wins. So we've established so far that John is saying that the Logos is the eternal, uncreated God. He is the life, he is the light. And here's the truth bomb in verse 14. The word, the uncreated, eternal God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. God became man. Stop right there. Just, okay, don't skip beyond that. Don't gloss over the idea because it's familiar. I'm just gonna give you like 20 seconds to turn that over in your mind. Observe it from all angles. God became a real, tangible, historic, touchable man. I'm not sure about the rest of you, but when I try and do that, I, it doesn't equate. I can't do it. I can't imagine what that means. And there are greater minds throughout the history who've tried to grasp what this was like in heaven. What does this mean? And, and, and 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon does I think a, a pretty interesting job of, of painting a picture of what this might be like, and I'm just gonna read. 
Go, saith the Father, and thy Father's blessing on thy head. Then comes the unrobing. How do angels crowd around to see the Son of God take off his robes? He laid aside his crown. He said, My Father, I am Lord over all, blessed forever, but I will lay my crown aside and be as mortal men are. He strips himself of his bright vest of glory. Father, he says, I will wear a robe of clay such as men wear. Then he takes off all those jewels wherewith he was glorified and he lays aside his starry mantles and robes of light to dress himself in the simple garments of a peasant of Galilee. What a solemn disrobing that must have been. And next, can you picture the dismissal? The angels attend the Savior through the streets until they approach the doors when an angel cries, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and let the King of glory through. Methinks the angel must have wept when they lost the company of Jesus, when the Son of Heaven bereaved them of all its light. But they went after him, and they descended with him. And when his spirit entered into flesh and became a babe, he was attended by that mighty host of angels, who after they had been, up, been with him to Bethlehem's manger and had seen him safely laid upon his mother's breast, in their journey upwards appeared to the shepherds and told them that he was born king of the Jews. The father sent him. Contemplate that subject. Let your soul get hold of it. And in every period of his life, think that he suffered what the father willed. That every step of his life was marked with the approval of the great I am. Let every thought that you have of Jesus also be connected with the eternal, ever-blessed God. For he, saith Jehovah, shall come forth from me. Who sent him then? The answer is his father. So I want to make a very short but I think important segue here, a little bit of a note. Philippians 2, which we don't have time to unpack tonight, makes it clear as well that Jesus did not give up his divinity, but rather added to it humanity. He was fully God and fully man. I would encourage each of you to dig into that passage yourself. That Jesus was both fully God and fully man is something that each of us have to make a decision on. We have to come to a conclusion like the Trinity, is it a picture that, we should, that should generate in us awe and wonder? It is a mystery. As finite men and women, this is something that our minds aren't really created to, to grasp fully. But Scripture is clear. In 1 John, he says, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist. Denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Restated, denying that Jesus was both fully God and fully man is incompatible with the Christian faith. If you deny Jesus was God and you reject him, John says you've set yourself up to be an enemy of God. And that's not just a spiritual reality, it's a conclusion of a logical argument throughout the rest of Scripture. Let's suppose for a moment that Jesus is not the Son of God. Just for a moment. He was not fully God and he was also not fully man. And this sets off a series of dominoes toppling against every other major Christian doctrine that we have in both the New and the Old Testament. Specific claims about him made by, about himself and by others over thousands of years don't 
They're not met in him. He no longer measures up as the Messiah. He could not have been sinless. If he was not God, then he would, the instant he opened his mouth and he claimed to be God, which he did many, 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 many times, he would have been a liar. His death could not have paid for sins because it wouldn't have been a perfect sacrifice. The cross would have been in vain. And the resurrection, he wouldn't have authority over death. In other words, by denying the character of Christ as God, we lose an understanding of God's love, God's will, and his power that is living and active in our world. And the Christian message becomes a set of lifeless and inconsequential doctrines that can be accepted or rejected without any consequence. It doesn't have any bearing on our lives. If you do not believe that Jesus was God, fully God and fully man, please do not waste your time believing that you are a Christian. It doesn't add up. It doesn't add up at all. I want to move very quickly on to the whys. Why? Why did Jesus have to come as a man? The first why of the incarnation was to redeem and to give life. Why was it necessary? Why was it necessary? And Timothy, 1 Timothy, actually nails why to the wall for us. He's saying, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Incarnation was always God's plan from the very beginning. Scripture teaches that God purposed and planned before the foundation of the world that his son would come, be born, and die. It was even foretold in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 9, 6 states that a child, the Messiah, would be born which was a reference to his humanity. And also it states, a son would be given, which is a reference to his divinity, suggesting his purpose. And they said the child would be called the mighty God, the everlasting father, titles reserved for God in heaven. Jesus Christ possessed a human body, but with one big difference. Who can tell me what that difference is? Who do you think it is? He was sinless. He didn't possess a sin nature. And that's key. Scripture is clear that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. But he was, out, he was without sin. He needed to be perfect in order to provide payment for sins. His sacrifice had to be the perfect sacrifice. There is no man that is righteous, also Scripture tells us, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no man is righteous, no, not one. So, the man who would be savior would also have to be God, for God alone is righteous. Because of our sin and our rebellion, all of us deserve one thing, without exception, God's wrath and God's judgment. We deserve death. We deserve separation from God. We've been looking at Revelation over the past month or two, and we see how someday Jesus will return and judge both the living and the dead as a king. And his judgments are always true. 
and right, regardless of what we may think or feel, because justice is always right. And apart from Jesus, not only do we deserve God's wrath because of maybe one thing we've done wrong, but the reality is, is that apart from him, apart from him, we would choose to reject him. Apart from the spirit coming to us and, and, and waking up our heart and softening it and showing us the truth of who Jesus is, we're all rebels. We choose sin in the past. We would continue to choose it today. We're enslaved to sin, dead and unable to respond and unable to rescue ourselves. We were without life and without hope, chained and in darkness, subjects of wrath. John 6.39 says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. The incarnation matters because not only is God just, but he's also astoundingly loving. He's holy, but he's overflowing with grace and with mercy. He did not create humanity to destroy it. In his great love, he declares his desire that not one should be separated from him. He created us so that we might know him, be in relationship with him, and willingly choose him and delight in him. That's why we were created. We are to be his people and he is to be our God. And he would be our father and we together would be his family. God needed a way to satisfy his justice and he needed a way to demonstrate his love and his mercy. Jesus came so that God could buy us back to himself. And this is the mission of the incarnation, to create a way. This is why Jesus makes the exclusive claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So some of you may ask, why use the term liberation invasion? If God had to redeem us to buy us back, and it raises the question, to buy us back from who? From who? I use the term invasion because there is an enemy. And the incarnation was God coming to challenge that enemy on his own turf. Scripture tells us that this world is governed by the powers of darkness. It belongs to Satan. Satan is the prince of this world and his spirit is at work in those who disobey God. Anyone in this kingdom of darkness is subject to death, both physical and spiritual. Jesus came to rescue us from the dominion of darkness and establish his own kingdom of light and to gather a holy people to himself that they would no longer be subject to sin and death. Hebrews 14.2 says this, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting for God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in 
in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children that God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us. He too, that's Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself was suffered and was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted." Only the incarnation can make possible such a change and enable a sinful people to live as God-filled, with God-centered lives. God became flesh to instill a godly nature into sinful man and to crush the devil's authority over humanity. And in death's place, he gives us the right to become his sons and his daughters. Let's look back at John 9 through 11, and said, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. God is saying, I am here for my family. It's a huge why for the incarnation. Through Jesus' two natures of God and man, God not only saves us from sin and death, But he also establishes and invites us into his family, of whom Jesus is the firstborn. We can become sons and daughters of the most high God. Why number two? Why did he come? He came to reveal who he really is to us. God did something else really miraculous through the incarnation. He revealed himself so we could know him. We could see him. We could talk to him. We could relate to him. He showed us exactly who he is and what he is like. God designed the incarnation for intimacy so that he could clearly reveal his loving and caring character. The incarnation proves that God does does not hide himself. For those of you who think that God's far, God's near, he's, he's, he's not interested in my life, wrong. If you look at Jesus, you can see exactly who God is. Hebrews says, in the past, God has spoken to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. If you know Jesus, you know God. If you know the son, you know the father. He is the exact representation of who God is in human form. From the moment sin entered the world and our relationship with God was broken, Jesus was, or God was pointing to the time that Jesus would come, that he would provide the prophecy, the imagery, the real-life object lessons of, of the Jews, all the while saying, soon, soon, I'm going to show myself. Soon, I'm going to make, make a way for you to be with me again. The sun who radiates God's glory. The sun who keeps the galaxies spinning. 
who sits now enthroned in heaven at the right hand of majesty. That's who Jesus is. So when you hear Jesus speak, you hear God speaking to you. Flatly speaking, the incarnation is God's way, I think, of tearing down all of our faulty assumptions of who he is. We all, have, we all like to customize our ideas of, of what God is like and what he should look like or what he should do. And um, we, we like to pick things out of scripture and, and identify the things that are like, yeah, I like that. I think I'm going to tack that on to that module on to my God. And uh, if there's something in there that trips us up or we don't like, then we're, we're going to take it. We're going to move it off to the side. But Jesus has a way of kind of getting under our skin on this through the incarnation. First of all, some of us need to grow in our understanding of Jesus as God, that he is the uncreated word who spoke creation into being and, and, and that he, he entered into the world. I cannot wrap my mind around this because I've looked at, you guys ever seen those videos where you say like, here's the earth. And let's zoom out a little bit. Here's the solar system. Zoom out in. Here's the Milky Way. And then, and then you realize that you've gone out past, at some, at some point in the last hour, you have moved beyond the ability for your brain to compute what you were looking at. God spoke that into being, and he came in to be as a man. It's the same problem that the, probably the Greeks had in that, this idea that, okay, well, maybe Jesus was just a really good guy, and maybe he was like, almost like one of our demigods, and he had some power and authority, and he, he could do some pretty cool things, but he's the God that holds the universe together, keeps molecules from flying apart. He governs, he created the laws of gravity and physics and electromagnetism, and then gives them permission to continue to work. He's the one who ordered the birth and death of billions of stars and billions of galaxies. And he's the same word, the same logos that gives you the ability to think, to reason, to examine, to question. At the same time, there are others of us who don't necessarily need to struggle with the idea of Jesus as God, but we need to struggle with the idea of Jesus as man. He isn't just a man in, in some kind of idea or he's out there. No, he's a man that was in physical proximity with people. We've seen him. We've touched him. This is what John is saying. Uh, the, and this is a problem for the Jews. Previously in, the, in their history, you had to go to a special place, one place, a temple, a tabernacle, somewhere holy. You couldn't enter. You could just get just up to the edge of where you weren't going to get fried, and there was God. That was the experience of his presence. The idea that God could become man and have a conversation over a coffee with you, with me, that was just too much. But John is saying, here, he had a body like ours. He talked with us. He ate with us. He laughed with us. He cried with us. And, and he said, we, we saw, and the, 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 the word here too, is like, we beheld his glory. It's like, it's like, hey, we beheld his glory like he was shining. No, no, no. It's like, we beheld his glory. Like, I saw his body. 
Like, I'm an eyewitness. Like, he was right there. Yeah, he was right there. I saw him. God drew near to us. And we can relate to God directly because he provided a way through the man, Jesus. But does this answer the question why? Okay, as I was grappling with these questions this week, I was, I was stuck by one question over and over and over again. Why? Okay, well, yeah, why? God came as a man. We had to, you know, satisfy his justice. Satisfy, okay, that's why. But why did he do it? What was his motivation? Why did God choose to send his son to suffer and die? Clearly, he could have provided salvation for us some other way. He's God. Why do it that way? It doesn't make any sense. Did he have to? Did he want to? Was he obligated? Was he delighted? What was his motivation? And I, I, I spun this around and around and around, and, and I didn't stumble upon the answer. And then when I did, I was like, oh, it's so simple. It's so simple. I was thinking my way around it. I was trying to come up, again, that idea of who, the, who God is. I had, I had him in his own little box, and I was missing the evidence right in front of me. The answer is so simple that a child understands it intuitively. The same way a child who calls out for help knows that a loving father has both the means and the power, the means and the motivation to rescue them. And that motivation is within himself. Why? It's who he is, her father. His motivation is his own. Because God is supreme above all things, no one external to God can motivate him to do anything. You can't tell God what to do. No one has the authority. Likewise, the method of salvation was something that came from within God himself. He chose, he chose to send his son in accordance with who he is, his very character as a loving God and a loving father. His motivation and his means were all in accordance with who he is. He had to. It's who he is. He wanted to. It's who he is. He is the great I am. He is the father who delights in his children. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Why number three, very quickly. Why number three is he needed to draw near. That's the why. It reveals his great love and delight in us and his desire to be with us. Even though we weren't drawing close to him, God was drawing near to us. And for many of us, the thought of God to draw near is terrifying. I may look like it'll have all together, but I have a mess. And if God comes too close, if I let him in to see 
All these things that are messed up, this relationship, that substance abuse problem, that addiction, that habitual sin, I'm gonna be exposed. And the image of God drawing near could inspire fear of a terrible reckoning. For deep in our hearts, we don't know God. That's what we fear. It's judgment. But God doesn't want to dominate you. God wants to give you freedom in life. In Philippians 2, again, I'm going to reference this, but please go and look at it. You see a picture of God coming down, 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 humbling himself, humiliating himself, going lower, 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 to the point that he enters the world, but he doesn't stop there. He becomes a servant. He lowers himself at the Last Supper to wash his disciples' feet. And I have completely lost my place. It's okay. The point is this. Jesus is not interested in some version of you that you think is acceptable to him. He is interested in you. The incarnation is proof of that. The incarnation, he came and he walked in your shoes. He was born as a baby. He was helpless and he, li- he grew up and he lived his life. He was without sin. He walked in your shoes and he laughed and he was tired and he was thirsty and he was hungry and he experienced loss and grief and sorrow and incredible pain. He walked where you walk because he wanted to be near you so that you would understand his love, that you would understand who he is and that ultimately he would provide a way for you to be with him. That is why the incarnation matters. And it should inspire in us an incredible indescribable, unquenchable joy, not fear, not fear of judgment, not fear of reckoning, but joy, that the creator of the universe condescended for you, and he gives you the opportunity to, like his disciples, be washed, to be served, not for you to serve him, but for him to serve you first. I ask the prayer team to come up. I have skipped a whole section of my sermon, but I don't think it matters. (laughs) I don't think it matters. Those of you at the prayer team, if you please come up, I'm gonna make some invitations for people to respond tonight. I wanna make sure we wrap up on time. The incarnation matters for us because it's the first light of hope in darkness. It is God's master stroke. It signals check and mate 
against our enemies, sin and death, the enemy and his kingdom of darkness. It is a shocking reveal of the manifold wisdom of God, the unveiling of the strategy of his overwhelming grace and redemption and love. It is a cause for great joy and rejoicing because God wants his family back. His family begins with his son, Jesus. He is the light in the darkness, the firstborn and the way maker. Through him, we can have a right relationship with God. We can really know him and we can be called sons and daughters of God. See what great love the father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God and that is what we are. This is what the story of Christmas is about. And I know I'm not going to say, like, well, it's not about the presents and the Christmas tree. This, this is what it's about. Because this has the power to utterly transform who we are. It has the power to utterly transform the world around us. That's why Jesus came. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. God is present tonight and he wants to meet with you. So I want to ask you to consider coming up to pray with one of your brothers and sisters tonight, especially if you have not already placed faith in Jesus, but tonight you want to know him. Come, because the Lord of the universe is actually inviting you to meet his son. Second, if your fear of God is that he wants to conquer you, not to, liberate, not to liberate you and to give you life. Come, let him show you that he is humble and gentle towards you. You can have the joy in the Father as Jesus has joy in the Father. The third group, if you're struggling to see God in your day-to-day and you have heavy burdens and sorrow and grief and need rest, come, Cast your anxieties on him. And if you don't feel like God delights in you, if you long to understand what it means for God to delight in you, come, ask to meet with the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you of the Father's heart toward you. And let me pray. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the first bone over all creation. Amen. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Lord, may we sing to the Lord a new song, for you have done marvelous things. Your right hand and your holy arm have worked salvation for us. The Lord has made his salvation known to us and revealed his righteousness to all the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel and all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Amen. Thank you for being here tonight. Please come.
please come and receive prayer. If you don't feel comfortable coming up, please uh, talk with someone who may have came with you and pray with them. God wants to meet with you. He sent his son for that very purpose. Have a good night.